In old school games, life is cheap. Don't be a dope. Bring your pole, oil, and rope. And try not to go down in a heap. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Down in a Heap podcast. I'm your host, Rob, podcasting to you live from beautiful Northeast Minneapolis. This is episode number 11, so I have uh, 1,100 experience points, or maybe just a 1,000 still waiting on the ruling from the Anchor DM about whether or not my um, Thieves Guild podcast with the, the myriad sound issues warranted 100 experience points or or maybe even docking me experience points, but I can see ADEPT, the title of ADEPT in the future for the OSR Anchorite Acolyte. So today I was planning on talking a little bit about another BX mechanic that I like to use in a lot of my role-playing games. But before we get to get that, uh, I had a few call-ins. First is Froth from the Thought Eater podcast. Hey man, Froth here. I enjoyed the Reaction Roll podcast. Uh, Couldn't agree with you more. I uh, definitely poured it over into other games, especially later editions of D&D. And uh, I also agree it works great for the DM to keep things unpredictable. It kind of, you know, puts you on the spot doing different kind of improv improvisation that you might not have considered so uh yeah enjoyed it thanks for the call in froth i appreciate your comments and feedback and yeah i i totally agree that using reaction is a is a method for the dm to kind of inject some uncertainty into the game and and especially for the for the dm itself as you allude to where you have to uh, react to this die roll and somehow incorporate it into the game and in a seamless manner at least hopefully a seamless manner and come up with explanations for why it occurred or or just you know to play along with it and it keeps you on your toes about porting it into later editions of D, as i've alluded to i never played three or 3.5 or four or pathfinder so i don't know how well it would poured in. I assume it's something that would be fairly easy to use. Um, it's my understanding that there wasn't really a reaction role kind of situation in those editions, but I could totally be wrong. I am more familiar with 5e, having run and played that a lot, and I, I have tried using the reaction role mechanic in that, and the one thing that makes it a little bit wonkier is just that the the attribute adjustments in 5e um, scale scale a little bit higher so um, a high charisma has more impact if you use the the same mechanic as is than it does in bx so that's a little bit tricky um, but you can use it as an initial reaction and then you know that you have the whole skill system with persuasion and and all that, so um, I suppose those you know, successful uses of the of those skills could 
shift the uh, reaction up or down um, with a successful die roll. So it would be, I think, fairly easy to, to work those mechanics together. Next up, I've got a call from Tim Shorts from Gothridge Manor. Hey Rob, Tim Shorts from Gothage Manor here. Yeah, the reaction things, the table's very nice as a general rule, but like you said, what you get and what you see a lot of times are going to be two different things. And because uh, it's not like uh, they've lost their intelligence because you've rolled, because if the innkeeper rolls a two and doesn't like you, he's not just going to, you know, come out. He's going to try to get as much money from you. And then maybe he's not the most scrupulous barkeep or bartender. And he might give a tip to the thieves guild of which room and maybe, you know, allow them to go in there and steal something from you because he doesn't like you kind of thing. And I think that's a smart way to run a game. And I think it's more fun that way, add a little complexity to it. So great episode, Rob, keep it going, bud. Thanks for the feedback comments words of encouragement tim i really appreciate it um and yeah the the reaction role interjects this whole uncertainty like i was saying to froth too and and as you point out that's a great a great kind of interpretation of the if the barkeep is a little unscrupulous and maybe turns that informant to the thieves guild and because you know so many characters will will just leave their a lot of their swag up in their room and um so it's pretty easy to access to a to a thief or or even just the innkeeper they probably have a pass key or something and if there's a lock and uh yeah as they come back from their latest adventure and find that their room's been ransacked um and that sets up a whole cascade of possible uh scenarios there seems to be nothing worse to a PC than being snubbed or robbed by someone. And in my experience, they are a very vengeful lot. And that could uh, set up a whole scenario with uh, the PCs and, a, and an ongoing feud with the thieves uh, gang or guild or whatever is around. But the, yeah, these reaction rolls um, create all kinds of situations you didn't foresee and maybe the high priest in the in the town has a terrible reaction that was completely unforeseen to the party and harbors a grudge or maybe the local sage um really likes the party and gives them information and hints about things or the local warlord uh hates the party and tries to extract some kind of tribute from them all the time. Um, it, the, the possibilities for emergent play with reaction roles, morale roles, and just a good set of encounter tables creates a whole set of circumstances that your whole game can revolve around. All these things are just um, nuggets of gold for emergent play style. So thanks again to Froth and Tim for the call-ins. Um, I really appreciate uh, the listeners and the, the feedback. So here we go to the main topic.
Run away! Ah, yes, morale. It warms my heart to think of this mechanic. Like reaction, it's one of those things that's almost vital to me for capturing an old-school type of D&D adventure game play. Because, you know, part of what balances out, if you want to use the that kind of odious term, uh, the players and monsters, is that monsters a lot of times will just give up or, or flee when uh, the going gets tough. And much like in a lot of ancient medieval battles, it wasn't about just slaughtering your opponents. It was about getting them to to flee, to break their morale. So, and again, like reaction, I don't think the mechanics in BX have really ever been um, excelled, at least in the, the versions of D&D I've seen. It's a, like reaction, it's a really simple mechanic where you have uh, a 2d6 roll, so you've got, again, that nice bell curve, and all the monsters are rated in morale. The lower the number, the more cowardly and uh, less likely they are to stick in a fight. The higher the morale, the more militant or uh, fear, fearless the, the monster is. So you basically, the DM will just roll... 2d6 and compare the the result to the morale number of the monster and if it exceeds their their morale number they will uh, the morale is broken and they flee or surrender or however you want to interpret it according to the monsters in question and the situation at hand if the morale role is equal to or less than their morale they they stick, they keep fighting. And when you check it, according to Moldvay, is in a couple two critical times, but he he basically says it should be checked in critical critical combat situations. The examples cited are after a side's first death in combat, and when half of the side has been incapacitated in some way, killed, put to sleep from magic etc. Um, and he notes that monsters that successfully check morale twice will fight to the death. Now, I mean, I, I do it a few other moments, too. If the monsters have a, a clear leader uh, in their group, I'll often have the morale check after if that leader is somehow killed or incapacitated. If it's a single monster, um, I'll often check it when that creature is severely wounded. And likewise, I do these things for the, the retainers or NPCs that are accompanying the, the player characters. So then you have to interpret the result if they if the morale is broken what are they going to do well if they if they have a ready exit and um and the the chance is there they'll usually retreat and if it's a an intelligent organized group 
it will probably be some kind of intelligent organized retreat um if it's a mob well they'll probably just turn and scatter and run um and you you might even determine those interpret those results based on the the die roll itself if they if they botch it completely and fail by three or more or something maybe they will just flee and uh turn into a a panicked rabble um if they just miss it by one maybe it's a more organized um withdrawal where they're still defending themselves as they fall back to different uh, strong points or something um and they might even, if they're intelligent enough, they'll they'll use whatever means they can to cover their retreat. Maybe, maybe they throw down some some oil and light it to to cover their retreat. Maybe they have some some reserve forces or something that can pour down some uh, missile fire on the on the attackers to cover the the retreat of the footmen. Um, maybe they have some some magical spells or. Uh, magic items that can create uh, some obscuring fog or anything really to, to try and uh, make pursuit a little more challenging. But so the morale ratings themselves, um, for example, a kind of a cowardly monster like a kobold has a six morale. Uh, moving up, goblins have a seven. But in the text, it says that if the goblin king or leader is present and uh, and still still fighting, their morale goes up. the The rest of the goblins' morale goes up to a nine. Um, the more militant hobgoblins have an eight morale, and likewise, if their leader, king, whatever you want to call it, is chieftain is around, uh, their morale is a ten. An unintelligent undead like skeletons and zombies have a twelve morale, so they never their morale never breaks, and that that's what makes them so fearsome. Uh, it's it's not that they're particularly tough monsters; it's that they they never give up. So if you run into a horde of skeletons, you can't other than a cleric turning them. You you have to destroy them, and. So even third, fourth level party might might be challenged by a big mob of zombies and skeletons, um, and they might be a lot less apt to attack them when you're using these kind of morale rolls because, well, yeah, the goblins, we can eventually, there's a good chance that if we take them down to half their number that they'll they'll flee. They might even flee after the first, the first uh, casualty. Um, but these other monsters, uh, unintelligent things like ochre jellies and, and a lot of the undead are just fearless. They'll just keep attacking and attacking. So, um, yeah, so that's, uh, uh, a good way to differentiate between, uh, the fear factor and monsters and stuff and what, what the player characters will be um, a little more apprehensive to fight. Um, and as I alluded to, re- retainers also in, in BX will have a morale rating. And 
that's uh, by the rules that starts out as a seven and is modified by the the hiring character's uh, charisma modifier. So if you have a, a say a thirteen charisma, the the retainer will have an eight morale rather than a seven. If you have a seven charisma, their morale will be a six rather than a seven. So their 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 loyalty is a little bit uh, tied to to their um, hiring character's charisma stat. And I'll usually roll a retainer's morale when the tough gets going, or when when it starts getting when things start looking bleak. If they suffer a wound that's fairly severe, where they're where they're to the point where one more hit can kill them, um, I'll also roll their morale anytime the <laughs> their uh, the party tries to tell them to do something, so something dangerous. So if they hand them a potion and say, "Hey, drink this and see what it does," well, they're, they're probably not going to just blindly do it. Um, or if they're always the ones kicking in the door to to see what's on the other side, you know, chances are eventually they're going to say, "Hey, why don't you do it once in a while too?" And I'll also roll their morale as the as Moldvay suggests after an adventure to see if they continue to to accompany the party or if they go their separate way. And morale, much like how I run reactions, uh, can go up or down depending on how uh, the retainer is treated. If they're, if they're given a um, valuable treasure, if their life is saved by the party, mem- the, party um, the morale might permanently go up if they uh, are continually asked to do the more dangerous things, take the lion's share of the risks, are poorly paid or harassed. I might not even roll morale in that case. They might just say, you know, screw you and and take off. But, and that's how interpreting these morale checks uh, come into play too, is, I mean, the retainer might decide, I'm, I know I'm leaving. This is, this is a bad scene. Um, and they might not, not just walk or flee. They might hang around until it's uh, the chance to take revenge is in their best interest. You know, what the, maybe they're, the person they decide they hate now uh, is severely wounded and relying on their retainer to try and get them back to civilization. And the retainer can just either take them out um, in a moment of weakness or take their treasure, you know, whatever swag they have, rob them and, and take off, uh, take the horses, <laughs> however you want to play that out. And as far as monsters go, well, if they, if they surrender, now there's a whole new uh, dilemma and opportunity for play, because you've got prisoners now, and what do you do with them? And what kind of information can they give to the party members under questioning? And, and um, what exactly is going to happen now? Will they, can you somehow convince them to be an ally? 
Um, will they perform some kind of task for you? Will they be a guide? Will they um, just be a nuisance? It's, uh, it's a whole new ball game just from a die roll on a failed morale check. And that's what I like so much about these morale rules and reaction rules is that, yeah, you, it adds uncertainty to the, to the play you, um, and gets you out of your patterns as a DM. You, rather than always having the monsters react the same way or fight to the death, which so often happens in games I play, you know, how many things actually fight to the death? Not too many. Um, but it adds uncertainty for the DM, too. It makes, makes them feel more like they, they're taking part in a game rather than just telling a story that they know the, the end results. So what else am I forgetting here? I always feel like I forget something when I'm doing these podcasts. Um, oh, so I will also give morale mods based on the initial encounter. So if the monsters are clearly outclassed, outnumbered by the, the party, I tend to lower their morale by one or two initially. And conversely, if they <clears throat> believe that they outclass the party, either in power or sheer numbers, I'll give them a temporary boost to their morale. And as the circumstances in the combat evolve, if they're clearly winning or losing, I'll maybe bump or lower that number again. Um, but yeah, morale is, BX morale is something that you can port over to most games. If I remember right, 5e, we played it a little bit, uh, and, you know, before the DMG came out, I was running it just with the player's handbook and then the monster manual, and using the BX morale that I think, if I remember right, the when the DMG came out, there was an optional rule for morale that essentially came down to a wisdom check for the monsters, which I think is pretty dumb. The Because I think they, I mean, how do they arrive at a wisdom stat for a monster anyway? I mean, how do you give up a, a wisdom stat to a skeleton or a, um, a plant or something or a rat? But what what you get and i don't have the monster manual dmg handy so i'm going off memory and might be wrong here and i apologize if i am but just looking at the monsters or the the creatures in the back of the player's handbook that are available kind of like for familiars or uh, stat blocks to use if you have a druid that's using uh shape-shifting because wisdom I think the way they arrive at wisdom in a lot of ways is based on um, the creature's five senses. A, a boar has a minus one adjustment to wisdom while a cat has a plus one. And that seems pretty stupid to me because, you know, I own cats and <laughs> sure they'll, they'll challenge little rodents or birds or something like that, but anything big advancing on them, they flee. Whereas a boar, isn't, aren't they supposed to be pretty fierce? Yet, in if you're doing it this way in 5e, they're, they're pretty cowardly. I don't know. Again, maybe I'm remembering wrong, but it might be just another case where, rather than trying to import 
an old school feel to 5e, maybe it's better to just ditch 5e and play an old school game and instead port over some of the things that you like about 5e and try and incorporate them into your old school game. But that's an entirely different topic. So thanks for listening. Um, If you have feedback to the show, ideas for the show, give me a call on the Anchor app. Thanks again to Froth and Tim Shorts for calling in. Listen to their podcasts at Thought Eater and Gothridge Manor. And until next time, don't go down in a heap.